This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Thanks for joining us once again on ACFN once again as the news world turns. More drama in Washington, D.C. Why? Well, you've probably seen the news, and this was a story that CBS News first broke. CBS News has learned that classified documents belonging to President Biden from his time as vice president were discovered at the Penn Biden Center, a policy research center here in Washington, D.C. This, of course, follows the fallout over former President Trump's possession of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which the FBI seized this summer. This past week, President Biden acknowledged that a document with classified markings from his time as vice president was found in his personal library, along with other classified documents found in his garage. How does this complicate the case against former President Trump? Harry Littman, former federal prosecutor, former U.S. attorney, is here. Harry, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure. All right. So I just finished uh, talking about this special counsel. Uh, the one, and not Jack Smith, who's working on the Trump classified documents, but the man who is now tasked with investigating the Biden classified documents. What do you expect uh, a special counsel given this task to do? Well, what I expect here, Jeff, is he's going to determine that there's no basis for a crime. Remember, he's got a special job, and the special counsel regulations give him the job to see if there's any criminal activity here. There's obviously political ramifications, probably policy ramifications about why it's apparently pretty easy matter to, you know, to leave the White House with classified documents. But his job is more precise. It's to see if there was any 
criminal activity. And as we learn again and again with the Trump uh, contrasting example, it's all about intent. And from everything we know, there's not only no intent on Biden's part, there's no knowledge. There's really no basis for thinking this is anything other than inadvertent. Now, that might leave some remedies to try to think about, but that should be the end of the matter for Tur. And if it is, he'll write up a report. He'll present it to the attorney general to explain it. And then remember Barr and Mueller, then that report is with the attorney general who decides what to do with it. If it happens the way I'm predicting, Garland, I think, will close it up and uh, may have a press conference and explain that there's been no basis for criminal behavior to go forward. All right. Wait a second now. Okay, because Harry, there are going to be some people out there who support former President Trump who say, well, why is he just assuming that Joe Biden didn't have criminal intent? You know, but everybody's so quick to assume that former President Trump was doing something wrong and he's guilty of something. So how can you just kind of dismiss the Biden classified case as opposed to the the Trump case, which we've been talking about for months now? Because these aren't like political assumptions. These are the facts from everything we know with Trump. He both knew about the original, in fact, directed the original taking of the documents and then orchestrated an 18 month uh, plus obstruction with every trick in the book from phony baloney legal arguments to assertion they're all his to at least having people lie about it. So that stinks to high heaven. That is intent and knowledge. For Biden, I'm not basing it on, you know, some kind of of political fealty, much less assumption. It's just everything we know. And it does, by the way, everything we know uh, accords with what stands to reason. It looks very much like back in whatever, when he was leaving the vice president's office, some staffer, not him, but some staffer, somehow managed to put classified documents in and among his things. Now, if that staffer was acting intentionally or nefariously, okay, then maybe there's some criminal charge to bring. But the focus for a special counsel is on Biden. That's where the conflict would be. And it's not an assumption, but just the read of the facts, uh, Jeff, that that say there's not a scintilla of evidence that would point toward any kind of guilty intent, knowledge, concerted action to get around the law. So that, to me, is the basis for predicting that this Republican appointee, Trump appointee, former DOJ official and U.S. attorney and hard-nosed guy, Robert Turr, will look at things and say, I I can't see a crime to possibly indict here. I still want to press you on how you characterize these these two cases, because I do think this is important. If you look back at the Trump case, and I'm just going to summarize what happened. The Trump people were notified by the National Archives that, hey, (laughs) you have some documents that we want back. And long story short, 
they were obligated to co- cooperate and to just give them back. And then, you know, the FBI would not have gotten involved. But the only reason the FBI got involved was because uh, National Archives officials felt like the Trump team was not cooperating. These are sensitive documents, and it wasn't one or two hundreds. And I think, in fact, there are still questions about whether everything has been handed over. So if you contrast and compare these cases, that's the the difference here. Uh, Just based on what we know, uh, and there are still some questions about when the Biden folks discovered these documents. There's still some questions. But the fact that the president, Joe Biden, is pledging to cooperate, uh, pledging to, uh, you know, to be as transparent as his attorneys allow him to be, it says something because part of the problem in the Trump case, and I, as I've said on this program and others many times, the FBI did not want this to blow up into a big thing. I had sources telling me before it became a thing that we didn't want this to become a thing. And it became a thing because the former president kept fighting them. Had he and this is probably what the Biden team is going to do. They're going to turn everything over. And it's it'll be it'll be done. But in the Trump case, it's just fight, fight, push back. They're my documents. They're not the government's document. And that's why we're in this situation. So, yes, the fact that Biden has found some classified documents, it does complicate the optics of the case swirling around Donald Trump, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's just going to give rise to these, you know, talking points, and it gives a kind of a club to the Republicans to beat DOJ uh, with. It is, however, as everything you've laid out makes really clear, Jeff, um, intellectually dishonest. Look, what is Trump being investigated for now? It's not even there's a chance of a charge for intentionally taking them away, which we know based on the evidence he did do. But everything about the criminal conduct is uh, the charge is obstruction. And it's because once you know there's an investigation, you don't cooperate. So the Optics, if you will, consist really only of a bare bones fact that there were some um, documents taken away from the office that there shouldn't be. But the crime, which, again, that's what Tur is in there to investigate, that that arises in Trump's case, because once that happens and just to, by the way, amplify one thing you said, they didn't the only reason the ar- the archives eventually found it out. Trump uh, team never, never told them. Uh, as opposed to Biden. But, you know, Biden's played an open hand right away. And that's just not a contrast in the facts. That's a contrast in the law when it has to do with what the special counsel is about, which is trying to see if there's any criminal case to put together. There's just no doubt that people are going to say, you know, I think uh, Josh Hawley said yesterday, it's an astounding 
astounding, uh, you know, symmetry. It's all the same. Of course, that's going to happen. But uh, the on on the criminal po- idea, it's night and day. Yeah, let's 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 simplify things even further. Let's say, Harry, you're the U.S. attorney. And you're investigating some sort of drug case. I'm a potential witness or potential suspect. Investigators approach me, ask me questions. I lie. I obstruct. You bet. You've just, what you stated, you've, you've violated a couple laws right there. Boom, boom. Instead of just... Telling the truth. <laughs> this is what I got. I'm sorry. I'm going to turn it over to you. Yes, I had drugs in my house. You know, just just be transparent. Or bring in an, t- an attorney to, you know, down to FBI headquarters, and the attorney will talk it out with investigators, and it shows that I'm willing to cooperate. Hey, let's make a deal. I don't want to go down with these guys. You know, let's let's find a way to make a deal. 100%. But I'll, I'll just add to the sort of facts here. If you have drugs uh, and you play an open hand, you're still in trouble because you're not supposed to have drugs. It isn't against the law. I think it's a policy problem and it's now a political problem. But there's no legal violation if somebody unintentionally leaves the White House and has uh, classified docs. Indeed, a really important thing to figure out here, Jeff, is how common is this? Does this happen all the time? Why does it happen so easily? What do we need to do to tighten up control so it doesn't happen? All of those questions, important questions, and all of the political considerations, which aren't so important but are going to dominate the discussion space, just really have to be kept separate from what a special counsel does, and that is, was there a crime? And, you know, if there if there wasn't, the job of the Department of Justice is to quickly close up shop there. I do think that's what will happen. People will still scream and cry about it and say, you know, politicization, dual treatment, even though the person who's going to make this determination is a former Trump U.S. attorney. That's just the country we live in now. But I just think it's so important to keep separate these very important questions. Why did it take them so long to tell uh, all kinds of things from the um, possibility that somebody committed a violation of the federal criminal law the way Trump is alleged to have done? If if I I mean, listen, I, I, I think everybody agrees that the Biden revelations complicate the Trump classified documents case. However, I think everybody, theoretically, I, you know, sometimes you wonder, okay, what are the Trump people thinking? Because I can't figure out what their end game is here. But I think everybody would say, hey, let's make both these cases go away. Because... <laughs> Let's make both these cases go away. Let's agree to propose some sort of legislation or some sort of guidelines Mm -hmm. on how documents like these are handled in the future so that we have consistent protocol throughout Republican and Democratic administrations, and we don't have this situation ever again. And by the way, Mr. Trump, 
you know, let's start a negotiation with your attorneys to make this go away. You admit that you did this wrong, you did that wrong, and you endorse this new legislation or these new protocols, and you and President Biden get together and you can agree on that, and the whole thing goes away and everybody's happy. Uh, I agree. I, I see all that except that last little part. I think no matter what happens here, as consistent with justice and law or not, people are going to scream, you know, and that's the uh, unhappy uh, hand that uh, Garland has been dealt. So he, he knows he's not going to quiet everything down to zero, but he's going to just try to at least convince some some reasonable middle, if it still exists, of the country that he is on the up and up. He is about facts and law. He isn't about um, politics. And look, it, it's easy for me to say, but I've worked there and people who have worked there and worked with him can just give their personal you know, attestation. That really is the kind of guy he is. But is that going to completely quiet the, the you know, turbulent political waters? No way. We know that already. Yeah, and, and that's one reason why we like having you on ACF is because you've been at the Justice Department. You've worked at a high level. With Merrick Garland, actually, I can add. Yeah. You know who he is, and you know how the political winds can shift. And the way they're shifting now, my gut is, nobody expects to see Donald Trump going to jail for this. You know, like, what is the end game here? I mean, what can you see happening? Because he's not going to go to jail for five to 10 or even three months. That's not going to happen. Maybe house arrest, but I don't even think that's going to happen. Like, what do you do with a former president who is accused of something like this? What do you do, Harry? First things first. You bring in a special counsel who looks at the facts and law and makes a recommendation. I think Smith is the kind of prosecutor who, if he finds you know, a violation on the facts and law, will tell that to Merrick Garland. And then it's very, you know, Garland has, I, I don't mean to say exactly, a lot of cover as if he doesn't have the political will otherwise, but then it really justifies the charge. Now, at that point, you're 100% right, Jeff. There are a lot of people, you know, howling on the other side who want him in an orange jumpsuit till the day he dies. And looking at, you know, the whole situation in the country, whatever past pre precedents there are, say with Nixon, you can imagine that the right, you know, and that's a between in air quotes uh, kind of result would be much less vindictive than that would be some kind of admission of wrongdoing and just having him leave the political um, arena forever. Will he agree to it? How exactly would it be structured? Hard questions like everything else with Trump. It's all, you know, f f uh, its own kind of example. There's no precedence to look to. But your your point, I think, is far-seeing and sophisticated. Some of the real, um, you know, uh, drum beating to put him away and forever is just going to give ground, I think. Yeah, I, you brought up a good point. Um, this idea that the punishment um, for a former president, Donald Trump, is not jail time, but a political one. This idea that he can never run for office, any office, again. 
you know, because if you look at the other and, you know, we're just again, we're just talking about one case here. And, and when we talk about the Trump cases, I mean, obviously, there are the January 6 related cases, fake electors, all sorts of legal problems here. And increasingly, the classified documents case to me seems like the one that poses. Um, uh, how should I say this? That That is probably not the most serious, I don't think, you know, based on some of the testimony that we've heard, some of the things that have happened, um, some of the other people who have been uh, convicted in relation to January 6th. You know, it just, it seems to me that idea that at the end of the day, this might just come down to, to Donald Trump saying, I will never run for office again and be disqualified from doing so. And there's a constitutional way to do it because he could say it and nobody would necessarily believe him. You know, I think you're right, Jeff. It's not the most serious. It is maybe the cleanest, though. It's one that the department can point to precedent and say, when people did things like this, we prosecute them. Where everything about January 6th, I mean, this is the the problem. It's but you know, it's also what makes it so grave. It's one of a kind. A president actually trying to you know foment a coup to, to stay in power. That is mind boggling. You know, an assault right at the heart of the democracy, but. It's very much a newfangled situation. There are first, there's a lot of complicated aspects to it. Whereas the Mar-a-Lago stuff, at least what I'd been thinking to date, and that's that is sort of the tragedy that of what happened the last week with Biden documents. It just makes it much more murky. But it's not it's not a trivial case because again and again and again, knowing the stakes, um, Trump doubled down and kept the documents and all the risks that that entails. And it's a fairly clean one relative to January 6th, but it's gotten definitely mucked up now by this, the whole Biden uh, aspect of things. I think the department's hope is if a special counsel comes in and makes quick work of a recommendation to not bring criminal charges, that it all gets kind of set to the side Hard to know, hard to see in our current political climate where immediately so many people came out of the box and, and you know, said, aha, Jacques to the Department of Justice. You know, they do that for their own political interest. That That's not going to change. Ari Littman, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff, for having me as always. A pleasure. Let's focus on the case in Georgia. This past week, the special grand jury impaneled to look into the 2020 election in Georgia finished its work. And here's what that means. That means that there is a report that the special grand jury in Atlanta, it has finished its work and it could possibly bring the case closer to criminal charges against former President Trump and others. The judge, Robert McBurney, who was overseeing this special grand jury, issued a two-page order this past Monday dissolving the special grand jury, saying that it had completed its work and submitted a final report. So later on this month, this judge will determine if the report should be released. We're going to talk about that with Tamar Hollerman, who is a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and 
I don't think anyone knows this case any better. So, Tamara, tell us what what do you think is going to happen next with this grand jury? Well, we at least know the next thing that's going to happen, but after that is anyone's guess. On January 24th, there is going to be a hearing in front of the Fulton County Superior Court judge who has been overseeing this special grand jury. And he asked all the parties basically with an interest in this final report from the grand jury to make their arguments to him on January 24th about whether the report should be made public or whether portions or all of it should be kept under wraps. Uh, he he did give us a very enticing nugget that the grand jury itself has recommended that its report be made public, but nobody other than the jurors, other than the judge, and other than now the DA's office knows what's in that report. So we aren't sure what the DA's office is going to argue, uh, whether they see a benefit in having at least portions of it being released uh, widely. Uh, as they decide whether they want to issue any indictments. The news media will, of course, step in and ask that the report be made public in its entirety, because they say it's in the public interest. And then we could also hear from potential targets of the investigation who are worried that their name could be dragged in the mud in this final report, who will likely argue to either keep the entire thing private, to expunge their portions of the report or to at least be able to take a look at it to see if there's anything in there that might impugn their character. A lot of this might be a little confusing for our listeners, how the system works there in Georgia. So based on this uh, grand jury report, how does the prosecutor in the case, Bonnie Willis, uh, make her decisions. Sure. The DA has the final decision-making authority when it comes to this investigation. It was it was the DA herself who launched this almost two years ago after she heard the audio of the now infamous leaked phone call between then-President Trump and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger here in Georgia, in which Trump asked him to find 11,780 votes. And she asked for the help of the grand jury because she was having issues with witnesses coming in to, to talk to prosecutors. She needed their subpoena power to help. So this grand jury sat for the last eight months or so, hearing from all sorts of witnesses, from constitutional officers here in Georgia, our Secretary of State, the governor, our late House Speaker, all the way up to Senator Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff. And so they've been kind of helping the DA decide whether to press charges. They, they've compiled evidence. They've heard the testimony. And basically, this final report is, we're, we're presuming, will kind of summarize their findings based on that eight months and also potentially issue recommendations about whether anybody, including the, the former president, should be indicted. It's worth noting, though, that because of peculiarities in Georgia law, special grand juries cannot issue indictments. Should the DA ultimately decide that she wants to do that, she would have to represent evidence in front of a regular grand jury, so an entirely different set of Fulton County citizens. But the final decision-making power is up to the DA. She does not have to listen to the recommendations of the grand jury. So based on what you just told us, it sounds like um, there might not be an immediate resolution, whatever that is, to this case. It it could take several more weeks, maybe months. 
Absolutely. It could even take potentially upwards of a year. It's really up to the DA. And it's, of course, up to this judge overseeing the case. I'll be curious to see how much of any of this report does he want to be released out there. On the one hand, some of this information has been made public by the likes of the January 6th committee. We, of course, have had the the leaked audio of that conversation between Brad Raffensperger and then President Trump. But there are many other things that were investigated by this special grand jury, um, the details of which might not be fully fleshed out in public. So it might be to the advantage of the DA to keep some things private for now, especially should she decide that she wants to try and seek indictments for uh, for various folks and, and to at least kind of keep her options open uh, before she gets the full kind of glare of the national spotlight. But you're absolutely right, Jeff. It could take a long time. Say she does want to issue an indictment. Um, it might take her weeks or months or longer to get her ducks in a row uh, go before a regular grand jury and get an indictment in her hand. Um, so we could be in for a lot of waiting. She has, over the last year or so, doggedly pursued potential witnesses in this case. Uh, and I think a lot of people who've been following this case, myself included, um, it just seems like this is... Uh, one of the most immediate threats to President Trump in terms of his, you know, present legal issues. What do you think? That's an opinion I've heard from many of the legal experts that I've spoken to as well, Jeff. Um, and they say that for a couple reasons. The first is that here in Georgia, we have that leaked audio, that conversation between Brad Raffensperger and Donald Trump. And that is a very compelling piece of evidence for a prosecutor. So should she decide to go after the former president, she has that right there. Um, Georgia law in certain respects is broader than federal law, which is what the Justice Department is looking at as it decides whether it needs to bring any charges against the former president. So for example, we have a racketeering statute here in Georgia that is similar to what Congress passed uh, decades ago in order to go after the mafia. But in Georgia, that statute is is written in a much broader way than what the feds have. And so the DA has mentioned over and over again, unprompted, that she is not afraid to use RICO if that is what she chooses to do. Um, and potentially as a part of this case. Um, and then there's a third reason why this could present a lot of legal peril for the former president. And that is that the DA here is not bound by the same constraints in terms of precedent that Merrick Garland is in Washington at the Justice Department. Merrick Garland has to worry about the optics of what it looks like for a Democratic administration to be going after its Republican predecessors and the precedent that sets moving forward for the United States of America. Fonnie Willis is a local DA here in Atlanta. She doesn't have to worry about the same constraints. And some of the evidence, frankly, in this case, it, it, it was public, if you will. We've talked uh, in the past, and you just mentioned it, that call that the former president made. But there are also statements that Rudy Giuliani uh, made uh, in Georgia that have come under scrutiny. 
Absolutely. And he spoke at several legislative hearings here in Georgia in December 2020 after the the presidential election, but as the vote count was still being fought over. He screened selectively edited uh, portions of surveillance tape of vote counting at State Farm Arena here in Atlanta. He really zeroed in on these two poll workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, um, who he said were doing something very sinister. He called it a smoking gun of, 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 of voter fraud. Um, and really presented it as this ominous thing. Well, as it turns out, and we saw this same issue being discussed in the January 6th committee hearings where they interviewed those two poll workers, is that they were doing nothing wrong. They were passing a ginger mint to each other. They were counting votes in in the way that was laid out in the law. And so many of the statements that Rudy Giuliani made at those hearings have turned out to be conspiracy theories, half-truths, outright falsehoods. And we know that is one of many areas that's being looked at by the DA in this particular investigation. And it's worth, Jeff, taking a second here to talk about how the January 6th committee has really helped this investigation here in Fulton County. Now, they have many of the same interests, as I mentioned, these these poll workers in Fulton County. But I think what they did that was very helpful to the DA here that she might not have been able to get by herself um, are folks who worked in the West Wing in the Trump administration during the final days of the Trump presidency and folks at the Justice Department who she might not have had access to, who weren't really well-known publicly. I'm thinking of folks like Cassidy Hutchison, uh, the aide to, to Mark Meadows, the then chief of staff. And she was able to provide testimony about the state of mind of Donald Trump at the time that he was trying to overturn the election results in Georgia. And the fact that he was being told over and over again that he lost, he had lost the, the vote count in Georgia, and even that he had acknowledged it to some of his closest aides. And despite that, weeks later, he's calling up people like Brad Raffensperger, our, our Secretary of State, and telling him that there was wide-scale voter fraud, even though he knew that that wasn't true. Knowing that intent, knowing what he knew and when, is a critical part of the DA being able to get charges to stick in a court of law. And that was something that, that was a weakness in her case that she had when she launched things. But now the January 6th committee really helped shore up for her. Let me ask you this way, Tamar, in in what ways does proving that kind of intent uh, perhaps lead her to file charges against the former president? Why is that important? Because it's actually a requirement in a court of law to, to get many uh, of these charges to stick in front of a, a jury. You need to be able to prove that somebody knew when they were committing a crime that something was wrong. Now, had she not had those pieces of information, stuff like what Cassidy Hutchison said or what his former campaign attorneys were telling him, like, oh, we told him that he didn't, he lost Georgia and yet he still was continuing to kind of parrot these lines. Um, you know, before he could have said, well, I truly believed in my heart of hearts that there was all of this fraud. And I was just telling the Secretary of State to look for fraud that we knew existed. Well, now we have folks who who have 
testified under oath who said, no, 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 Trump knew better. And we told him that. Another really significant piece of evidence that was shaken loose by the January 6th committee are these emails uh, that that one of his campaign attorneys, John Eastman, had been sending. Um, now, these are emails that he fought in court to keep private, uh, that, that the, the January 6th committee won access to those emails. And it showed in relation to a lawsuit that the Trump campaign had filed in Georgia courts in order to... Um, to change vote counts here in Georgia. Um, John Eastman was saying in those emails, wait, we know that these vote totals that we're going to cite in these cases are wrong. And yet Trump signed his name to that anyway, um, that, that attributing that they were true. And so that's a very crucial piece of evidence to the DA and something that can really help her get charges to stick should she want to indict folks like the former president. Given what happened post-2020 um, outlined in some of the evidence presented by the January 6th committee, some of the information we've heard coming out of this uh, special grand jury, given what happened in Georgia, we've already been through the midterm elections, but are there questions about the security or the credibility of Georgia elections because of what was happening post-2020 presidential election? Well, sure. There's still many uh, base voters in the Republican Party here in Georgia who have serious questions about the way that elections are run, not only in Georgia, but nationwide. Polling has shown that consistently, something like three quarters of, of primary voters in Georgia were thinking that in the lead up to the midterm. It, and it's interesting to hear that, but then know at the same time that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was comfortably uh, you know, comfortably made his way through a Republican primary against a Trump-backed primary challenger, Jody Heiss. So kind of despite those concerns, he was able to easily win his primary and, and cruise to re-election this fall. Part of that was because of Democrats stepping in to reward him for standing up to Donald Trump, actually going in and voting in the Republican primary in order to vo voice their satisfaction. Uh, but Republicans were also able to win over some of their own skeptical supporters when in 2022, uh, or I'm sorry, in, in 2021, when they went and passed uh, what was a really controversial overhaul of Georgia's election system, um, really tightening up rules when it came to absentee ballots, drop boxes, um, even who's able to hand out water bottles in line to voters. That whole package was designed to help win win over these skeptical Republicans who I think were very convinced by what the former president and his allies were saying about how insecure our voting system was. And in Georgia, you saw that our incumbents were able to all win re-election, including Brian Kemp, who who was on the wrong side of, of President Trump in the aftermath of the 2020 election. So I think we can see that they were able to win back a lot of Republican support. You know, based on what you just said, the, the final piece um, of sort of um, restoring the credibility or any questions about Georgia elections is, is really what happens in this case. 
you know, how this case turns out one way or the other. It'll it'll sort of be the final word in the 2020 election and how Georgia held its election and, you know, the credibility of the election, whether it stands up. But there's going to be a real question of whether a lot of these Republicans who are concerned about election integrity, there's a real question if they're going to be willing to listen to this. Um, many folks are extremely dismissive of this investigation and of the DA and her intentions. She's a Democrat. She's up for re-election next year, um, as is Donald Trump, who she's investigating. And so I think a lot of people have dismissed this as a politically motivated witch hunt designed to help Democrats in the 2024 elections. So she has been doing everything that she can to kind of show folks that she's doing this not as a partisan but as somebody who swore an oath to uphold the laws and investigate potential crimes to the full extent of the law. And so she's been doing everything she can to try and prove that to folks. Judge McBurney, who's been overseeing this grand jury, has also been doing that as challenges have come up along the way. But I have a feeling that there will still be a significant proportion of Republican voters um, who won't, it won't matter to them what comes out of this. It will have been tainted from the beginning. Well, I, I, I would say, um, based on your reporting and what we were talking about at the, the beginning of our conversation, that's why it is going to be so important for this judge to release the findings or the report by this special grand jury to essentially hear what the grand jury, which is supposed to be made up of, you know, our peers or uh, the accused peers, um, in terms of these are everyday people. They've been looking into this case. They've been listening to testimony. It is important that we see and that Georgians see what they have determined. Absolutely. And from my understanding, based on some witnesses I've talked to who've spoken to that special grand jury, um, even though Fulton County is an overwhelmingly Democratic county, um, there are still folks serving on that or who served on that special grand jury who had real doubts about the election and the way that it was carried out. So I'll be very curious to see how this final report is framed how many new details are going to be in there. But a real question heading into this hearing on the 24th is how much the judge lets potential targets of this investigation be able to go in and read the report ahead of time and try and scrub portions of it from the record. There is legislative precedent for that. I'm sorry, uh, court precedent for that here in Georgia, a, a court case in 1961 that makes it illegal to impugn the character of public officials in anything that's not an indictment. And because this special grand jury does not have the power to indict, it is possible that um, especially recommendations in terms of charging different folks, that could end up being scrubbed from the document, at least temporarily, until the DA decides what she wants to do. Damar, thanks for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget that you can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. 
for now. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.